Ephesians chapter 1, and we read from verse 3 to verse 14. Let's read and hear together the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Father, give to us Your help, we pray, as we open Your Word now. May it live to us by the, by the working of your Holy Spirit, working within us to see that it lives, to know its powerful truths applied to us. We need you to do this. And so we ask this of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder uh, if we were to gather everyone's primary school report cards and read them out, uh, what kind of reading that would make. Do you still get those today the same, same way? Maybe some of the younger ones have had one not long ago. Uh, primary school report card. I'll tell you what mine said. Mine said, yeah, he's doing fine, um, but he really needs to work on his handwriting. The next year, Andrew must improve his handwriting. The year after that, Andrew's handwriting shows no sign of improvement, <laughs> and it never has. Well, if we could read Paul's report card, or Saul's, I guess it would have been, I think it might have said something about his grammar. Saul needs to use punctuation more. Saul needs to write shorter sentences. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 which in the ESV is five long sentences, and in the NIV is eight sentences, is in Greek one massive sentence. It's been described by one scholar as the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I have ever found in the Greek language. It's been compared to a snowball gathering pace uh, as, it, as it goes downhill, gathering size. Paul's vision of God's grace and His glory and His majesty and the way that He works just builds and builds and builds until it's big enough to knock you over. 
just keeps building up this picture of a gospel which is the greatest treasure in the world and a God who is the greatest treasure in the universe. It's a monstrous sentence, but it's simultaneously a magnificent sentence. Since we have three Sunday mornings left this summer, apart from Holiday Club Week, uh, we're going to take three weeks to consider it. There is a good reason it's three, because as you may be aware, or as you may have noticed as we read it, in these verses, Paul sets out a gloriously Trinitarian vision of salvation. He wants to show us how God saves us through the gospel, but within that, how the Father saves us, and how the Son saves us, and how the Holy Spirit saves us, and how the particular parts that each plays are distinct but not separate how this is one salvation accomplished by one God, but with three persons each doing a particular and wonderful work. So, in a sense, over these three Sunday mornings, we'll, we'll just take three snapshots of the gospel from different angles uh, in order to appreciate different aspects of what a glorious salvation it is. Paul, as he describes it at times, focuses in on the work of the Father in particular, <clears throat> We see that mostly this morning in verses 3 to 6. At other times, the main focus is on the work of the Son. That's the main thing in verses 7 to 12. And then in verses 13 to 14, he describes the role of the Holy Spirit in more detail. But at the end of each of these three sections, it's interesting, if you, if you read through it, it's kind of punctuated um, within this great long sentence. At the end of each of these three sections, there is a very similar phrase at verses 6 and 12 and 14, we're brought back to the one triune God with the reminder that all of this is to the praise of God's glory and grace. He uses that expression three times. So, we're thinking this morning about the work of God the Father in our salvation, and a quick glance at verses 4 and 5 will tell you what Paul identifies as, as his distinctive work. He chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. It's always nice to have something simple and uncontroversial to think about, isn't it, of a Sunday morning? Something for the younger ones to chew on as well. So, here we are thinking this morning about election and predestination. Uh, there's a great comment from J.C. Ryle back in the 1800s. Maybe this will comfort some of the younger ones this morning. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, election imputed righteousness, original sin, justification, sanctification, and even faith itself are matters which sometimes puzzle a child of tender years. Not sure how far we can stretch tender years, but uh, I'm sure it's not just children who find themselves puzzled by some of these ideas. What do we mean when we say that God predestines certain things? And what do we mean when we say that God elects certain people? I uh, was just looking at a Peanuts cartoon, as you know, one of my favorite theologians, Charlie Brown. Um, and this one, Snoopy the dog is uh, just sitting there. He's watching as people go by, and he's musing to himself. And Snoopy says, um, I wonder why some of us were born dogs while others were born people. Is it just pure chance, or what is it? Somehow, the whole thing just doesn't seem very fair. I mean, why should I be the lucky one? Well, the first thing I want us to notice this morning is what Paul's response was to this teaching and what he clearly expected the response of the Christians in Ephesus to be. Blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote, for these things, these things that so often confuse us and, and we get into all sorts of contortions of mind and spirit about them, Paul's response is, blessed be God for this, for this wonderful gospel truth. Praise Him, give thanks to Him. Paul, Paul writes this um, to, to lift the spirits of these Ephesian Christians to the glory and majesty and grace of God and to give them reasons to rejoice in Him and in His goodness. Because contrary to so much of what's, what's often written about election, what emerges through the Bible's teaching about it is not some kind of fatalistic view of a tyrannical and unjust God who sends people to hell when if only they'd been allowed to, they would have repented of their sins and believed in Him. That is absolute nonsense. And if, if we think that that's where the teaching of election takes us, then we've completely lost our way and we've jettisoned half of the Bible in the process. We cannot do that. And there's certainly nothing at all of that weird warping of Christian faith that still rears its ugly head from time to time. The notion that there exists somewhere a harsh and forbidding God the Father who really just wants to judge us all. But, but along comes a loving and gracious and compassionate Jesus, and He persuades God the Father to change His mind about us and to show mercy towards us. That is a parody of Christian faith. It's a contradiction of Christian faith. This is how one of the commentators puts it. There is no debate raging within God concerning our place in salvation. There is no tension. There are no awkward silences or heated conversations. Rather, there is a grand conspiracy of love originating in the eternal and sovereign grace of the Father. A great expression. A grand conspiracy of love. That's what the doctrine of election is all about. It's about the wonderful fact that before time began, Father and Son and Spirit took counsel together and purposed to create a world and the knowledge that it would fall and determined to redeem that world at awful cost and planned to restore it to a point where all created things would be united under God and glorify Him forever. That teaching, not a strange thing that's been smuggled in, it saturates the Bible. But more than that great overarching teaching about the whole of human history, election proclaims this to God's people. God determined then, in eternity past, that you would be His. The Father set His love upon you. The Son promised to die for you. The Holy Spirit undertook to come to you and indwell you and make the gospel real to you. You were chosen by God according to His mercy alone. This is the grand conspiracy of love. And how it's slandered and how God is slandered when people look upon election as an unjust or loveless thing. It is a magnificent and gracious thing. So while we may have many questions about it, some of them we'll come back to, and some of them we need to accept that the Bible doesn't answer, but while we may have many questions about it, we need to remember that the reason Paul speaks of this is to invite us to stand in awe before a God of such love and to recognize the supreme privilege that is ours because of His goodness. Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine sure you can picture the scene. 
It'll be very familiar to you um, most Friday nights, I think. Imagine a, a young man and a woman, they're in a restaurant, and they're smartly dressed. The lights are low, the candles are glowing, the mood is perfect, the music plays gently in the background. He leans towards her, and he says, I love you. I have never loved anyone like I love you. I want to be with you forever. I cannot imagine being without you. Marry me. And she replies, what kind of a monster are you? How dare you love me? What, what about my sister? What about my neighbor? What about my colleague at work? How dare you love me in, in a unique way and in a special way? You're, you're clearly some kind of capricious tyrant. Ridiculous, isn't it? That's not how love works. And it's not how we respond to the news that we're loved and chosen. What you actually feel in that moment, some of you have known this, you younger ones might know it one day, so what you would feel in that moment is that you're the happiest person in the world. He chose me, she chose me. This is astonishing. And it's when that sense of privilege goes and you start to get problems in relationships and marriages and so on. The amazing thing. I'm loved, I'm chosen. You revel in it. And that's what the doctrine of election should produce in us. If we're those who know and love the Lord. I have been the target of a grand conspiracy of love. You ever had that? You know, somebody, something's happened in your life, somebody throws you a surprise party, and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, there's, there's been a bunch of people planning this behind the scenes. For, I've known nothing about it, but they've been planning this and planning to do something good for me because they've loved me. An amazing thing. Here, we discover behind the scenes, before time began, God has been planning this, this, this joy for us, this love that he sets upon us. Chosen for nothing in me to be showered with blessing. Chosen, unworthy as I am, to be made a child of the living God. Chosen to have goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. How can it be? How can it be, to, to use the expression of Revelation 13, that my name, my name was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain? What else can you do in response to such news but fall to your knees and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's our starting point for thinking about this teaching, or it needs to be a sense of astonished wonder that such goodness should have been poured out upon us. It's a grand conspiracy of God in line with his purpose of love. And so, as Paul considers election, he's moved to praise God. He's moved to offer blessing for blessing. That is, he, he, he blesses God for the blessing he's been shown. Do you see the pattern there? Blessed be God who has blessed us. So, this is the, the, the praise of the ransomed soul, the response of the redeemed sinner longing to proclaim the greatness of God's grace. Paul celebrates the fact that God elects in order to bless 
And he says, he tells us here that there are three purposes underlying election. There are three things that God chose his people for. I think if you're following on the clipboard, I think we're at question seven. Um, three things, and each of them has amazing implications for us. We're just going to touch on them. We don't have time to linger on them. The first is there in verse four. Have a look at verse four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to what purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you're a believer, this is because God in the full knowledge of the sinfulness of your heart chose you to be made holy, to be counted righteous in Christ, and then in time to become progressively more like Christ. He chose you to be made ready to enjoy His presence forever, which of course has all sorts of implications for how you live today. The second aspect is in verse 5, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. I think I put on the sheet predestination um, simply means God deciding in advance that something is going to happen. Simple as that. God decides in advance that something is going to happen. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is, I think, an underappreciated but central gospel truth. By God's grace, we are adopted into His family. Sons of God are those who enter into the kind of relationship that Jesus Himself has with the Father. That's the way that Jesus presents it to us. Um, there, there is the Father, and there is the Son, and Jesus, we are united to Him and enter into the same kind of relationship of, of love, uh, mutual love that He has with, with the Father. Sons of God are those who belong to His family and therefore follow after His nature. It's part of what it is to be a son, isn't it? It is to bear the nature of your Father. Sons of God are those who have an intimate relationship of love and trust with this perfect Father. Sons are those who are entirely secure. When we think about what the Bible tells us about adoption, you need to ask yourself this question. If you are or can imagine being a parent, what would you do for your child? What would you do to protect your child? I would, I, my guess is that every parent in the room one word immediately came into your head. Anything. Anything. I would die. That's how secure children of God are. And following on from that, if you just glance down, jump on to verse 11, we find there that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of God. Because the other thing about being adopted, it specifically says adopted as a son, and there's a reason for that, um, and that is that, of course, in Greco-Roman society, adoption as a son brought with it full rights of inheritance. A son lived in the knowledge that one day he would come into possession of everything that belonged to the Father. The position of the Christian, says Paul, is something similar to that, the goodness that belongs to God, the perfect and eternal existence that belongs to God, the peace that belongs to God, the freedom from all that's sinful, the enjoyment of all that's good, the sheer blissful happiness that belongs to God. This is our inheritance. This will be ours. 
If you're in Christ, you're a son of God, and that waits for you. These are the blessings that God pours on His people, but the the channel, the pipe that they come through is election. George Whitfield, a great preacher, uh, once said this, election is a mystery that that shines with such resplendent brightness that it dazzles the weak eyes even of some of God's dear children. However, though they know it not, all the blessings they receive, all the privileges they do or will enjoy flow from the everlasting love of God the Father. These are the blessings that God determined in eternity past that He would shower upon His people. We'll consider next week how they become ours in Christ. But the absolute root of the reason why they are ours is that before the beginning of time, God determined that they would be. It's by election that this happened, and so it turns out that far from being the embarrassment that some people seem to think it is, election is the cornerstone of salvation. I want to take, take the, the rest of our time just to think about this issue. I want to say um, five simple things about election. This is a, it's a wonderful gospel truth, but it's an area that people often have difficulty with. Let me say to the younger ones, this stuff is, is a bit tough. Um, don't worry if you don't pick up everything from here. Pick up what you can and take what you can from it. We're all, we're all stretching in this stuff. Number one, election is plainly taught in the Bible. Contrary to popular belief, it was not invented by John Calvin. Calvin didn't actually write that much about election. If you read the Institutes, it's this size, and the bit on election is um, it's very small, and it comes in at about page 900 or something. But it is plainly taught in the Bible. If you don't like the idea of God electing His people, of having been predestined to salvation, if you want to reject that, you have to do so in the teeth of what the Bible says. Ephesians 1 is one of the plainest statements of this truth. He chose us. He predestined us. We having been predestined. I I don't know how you can make this any clearer. It's amazing that this is an issue. Martin Luther said, election is taught as clearly in the Bible as the existence of God. That's how plain it is on the page. And it's a pattern you find throughout the whole Bible. God chose or elected the nation of Israel. It wasn't anything in them. He tells them it wasn't anything in them. In that, in that um, if I can say this respectfully, in that completely illogical and completely wonderful statement in Deuteronomy 7, he says, the reason I loved you was because I loved you. And the pattern continues in the gospel. Jesus refers to his followers as he prays to the Father, as those you have given me. He says to his people, you did not choose me, I chose you. Paul says in Romans 8 that God predestined and called and justified and glorified His people. Peter addresses his letter to God's elect, the ones God has chosen. It's the plain teaching of the Bible. We may find it difficult to reconcile with other biblical truths, but it's there in black and white. So, that's the first thing. Election is plainly taught in the Bible. The second thing, which is very important, is election is not all that is plainly taught in the Bible. There are other biblical truths which need to be held in tension with it, and which make it clear that election and predestination do not result in the ridiculous outcomes that are sometimes claimed. People who can, oh, I can't be saved. I can't be saved because God didn't choose me. 
so I have no responsibility to respond to the gospel? Or, or well, we're all just machines with no uh, meaningful choices in life, all that kind of stuff. Yes, the Bible says that those who are saved have been chosen by God, but at the same time, the same Bible teaches with the same insistence that anyone who repents and believes will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know if you're elect? Believe in Him today. Believe in Him. That's the call of the gospel. Believe in Him. The call of the gospel is not, well, you might be elect, and therefore, the call of the gospel is, Jesus died, and God will forgive all who believe in Him, so believe in Him. It makes no sense whatsoever to sit around and say, well, what if I'm not one of the elect, whether you're, whether you're in church or not in church? Repent and believe, and you will be saved. You know, we want to resolve that tension, don't we? Is it God's choice or is it our choice? The Bible's answer is yes. Yes. That's as far as the Bible goes. So that's as far as I'm going to go. If you want an illustration, the best I've heard, there's no perfect illustration of it, but the best I've heard, I think, is is imagine a man, a spiritual seeker, he comes to a door, and on that door it says, it says on the door, whosoever will may come. And he says, I will. And he reaches out and he opens the door and he walks through it and he closes the door behind him. And as he closes the door behind him, written on the back of the door, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. These things are both true. Number three, election is the sinner's only hope. One of the great problems that people have with predestination is, oh, it destroys free will, it destroys free will. As we've just seen, the Bible plainly doesn't think so. But my point here is slightly different. My point here is don't overrate free will. Don't make free will sovereign, not in matters of salvation. It's no accident that in the very next chapter of the Bible that we're told about the condition of sinful men and women apart from God, apart from the grace of God at work in their lives, What does Paul say our condition is apart from God? You were dead. You were not a bit sickly. You were not a bit poorly in need of some vitamins or a blood transfusion or something. You were dead. So, the problem is free will does not do a dead person any good. Imagine Jesus walking into the cemetery and he walks up to the grave of Lazarus. He walks up to this great stone in front of the the grave of Lazarus and he shouts, Lazarus, good news. Turns out you've got free will. So, So just out you come. There's nothing stopping you. There's nobody holding you down. Out you come. But Lazarus was dead. And and he could do no such thing until the voice of Jesus commanded him and brought with the command the power to obey. Lazarus did not choose to be raised any more than we chose to be born. Jesus chose to raise him. 
And that was the only way that Lazarus was ever going to be raised. Free will will not save us because salvation is not something that we do, but something that God in His grace does for us. That's the fundamental truth, and that's what the Bible describes in the language of election and predestination. We do not choose God, not until He has chosen us and breathed new spiritual life into us. And in a counterintuitive kind of way, that leads to two practical results. The first is that it is a great incentive to prayer for our unbelieving friends and family and neighbors and colleagues. Election, election doesn't mean, oh, well, there's no point in praying then because God's decided. No, no. Election means that there are those whom God has chosen for life. If, if all we've got is our hope and best wishes, and, you know, then, then they're not going to live. But we know that there are those whom God has chosen for life, and if He's chosen them, they will live. And so we pray. We don't know who they are, and so we pray for all. Simple as that. And the second is that in the same way, it's a great incentive to evangelism. We can witness to the gospel in the confidence that there are those whom God has chosen who will repent. And, and in the knowledge that the success of our evangelism doesn't ultimately depend on, you know, did we just get the right word, or did we get a word wrong, or say the wrong… That's not what it's ultimately about. God calls us to witness, but our hope is in the grace of God, electing unbelievers to enter His kingdom. So, election is the sinner's only hope. Number four, election is the believer's great assurance. This, this, is, this is very important. Here we draw ever closer to the heart of why this truth is recorded for us here. It is strange. It is a strange thing that this should be such unpopular teaching. The heart of election is this. God chose you. God chose you. What is not to adore in that? Why would that not set our spirits soaring? And one of the greatest reasons to praise is that, is that our salvation, the foundation of our salvation, is not something in us, but an eternal decision of God. What confidence that gives us. Imagine, imagine if my salvation, if my eternal destiny hinged on my decision. I can't decide whether to take milk in my coffee. I change my mind every five minutes. Imagine if my eternal life hinged on me deciding and me holding on and me and me. It would be a catastrophe. My whole security hangs on the central gospel truth of the entire Bible. Do you know, I've probably mentioned this before, but do you know um, J.I. Packer? Um, they always say of pa Packer by name, Packer by nature. He, he packs a lot of stuff into to his writings, but he has a wonderful way of expressing things. J.I. Packer says, I can tell you the message of the gospel, the whole message of the Bible in three words. God saves sinners. That's the good news. And this is how he describes it. God, Father and Son and Spirit working together in perfect harmony, saves, does everything from first to last that is involved in bringing man from death to life, plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. 
God saves sinners. That, that's the good news. That's our hope, and only that salvation can do us any good. Our assurance hangs not on our decision to trust Him, but on His decision to save us. And the final thing then that I want to say about election is really the other side of the same coin, and it's this. Election serves the grace of the gospel and the sovereignty of God. When you think about it, only if salvation is by God's decision can it truly be said that it is all of grace, 100% of grace. Otherwise, it, it, it ultimately rests inevitably on my decision to trust. That's the core thing that distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. Some are saved because they're more spiritual, or they're better people, or they're wiser, or whatever, but it's something in us. Election demonstrates that, that, that salvation does not depend on anything in us, nothing whatsoever. John Newton had a great, John Newton, when he was in Olney in Buckinghamshire, um, he had a lady in his congregation who always liked to say to him, I know perfectly well that God chose me before I was ever born because I know perfectly well that I've never done anything since that would have caused them to choose me. So, election preserves grace. It's not about us or what we've done. God didn't look forward and say, oh, look, he's going to be a good one. She's going to be a good one. I'm going to save them. That's not how it worked. Preserves the the grace of God, and it preserves also the sovereignty of God. And this matters because far too often in the world, and even sometimes in the church, God is presented as some kind of slightly forlorn and pathetic figure who wishes that people would take an interest in Him. Sits there on high as people go about their lives, and it's like He's saying, hello, hello. That is nonsense. God is majestically sovereign in all things. He is carrying out His purpose. He is all-powerful. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will and according, says Paul, according to an eternal plan which is completely on track to unite all things in Christ. This is election. That's what the doctrine of election is about, not some esoteric theological problem, not a strange piece of dry doctrine, but a miracle of grace and a glorious blessing of the gospel. He chose you. He loved you. He predestined you in a grand conspiracy of love. I think I, 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 think I may have mentioned before the story um, told by a pastor in the U.S. about the day when he and his wife were heading out of the house they lived on a busy road with lots of cars, lots of traffic going past. And he looked up to see his two-year-old running down the garden path. And she had just learned, she was two years old, so she had just learned that it was great fun to run away from mum and dad and to have them chase her. So he looked up to see her running down already at the end of the path. And he screamed her name. And he says... He says in this book, he says, I will never, as long as I live, forget the look on her face as she turned around and looked at me and laughed and kept running. 
happened as I sprinted as fast as my legs could carry me, as fast as my heart would take me, and then faster. This is what he says. Ashley ran in front of a vehicle parked on the side of the road. As I sprinted towards her, I looked to my left at the oncoming traffic and saw a large delivery truck rumbling down the road right in the lane where Ashley was about to step. The truck driver would never see her if she came out from behind the parked car. I was, I was certain that my daughter was about to die in front of my eyes. I closed in on her just as she stepped into the lane. She was a few steps into the street when I grabbed her by the back of the vest and literally pulled her out of the way of the truck. My daughter's life was spared by inches. I reached out and overrode the free will decision of my daughter and saved her life. I did this because my love for her is more important than her free will. Jesus said, you did not choose me. You were running into the road. You were headed for death. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your sovereign love and grace, more important than anything else in the world. We thank you for your intervention in our death-bound lives. We caught up in sin and sinfulness and folly, spiritually dead already. You came to us and you grabbed a hold of us for life. We thank you for election. We thank you for this great truth. We thank you for this grand conspiracy of love conceived before time even began, of which we are the beneficiaries. Help us, we pray, to live as those chosen by you, for you, for holiness, and for your glory. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.